So today's Bible reading is Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. So it's page 1001, Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hand. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been written somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than angels, you have crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 
For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things existed, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is, why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." You're not crazy. Uh, We did read Hebrews chapter 1 last week. Yes, we did. But I thought we'd read it again uh, this week with chapter 2 because these first two chapters of Hebrews actually work together. They work together to teach and convey to us a, a most important tension about Jesus Christ, that he is fully God, chapter 1, and yet fully man, Chapter 2. As we draw out those two things, therefore, about Jesus today, uh, the scripture quotes along the way here capture something else about Jesus, which might help frame our thoughts on his humanity and his deity. Because if you were to go and look up these quotes, you'd see that most of them are from Old Testament scriptures that speak to Jesus's kingship. And so while verse 1 introduced us last week to to Jesus in his role of prophet, and we focused last week as we did on on the weight of revelation, therefore, that God has brought to us when he spoke to us through his son, uh, all the while those quotes that we kind of skimmed over last week were pointing out Jesus's role as king. And king, just so you know, is, is one of three roles for which God anointed people in Old Testament times. And anointed, just so you know, is what the word Christ means. So if you drop your eyes to chapter 1 and verse 5, the first part of verse 5 is a quote from Psalm 2. You are my son. That comes from Psalm 2. And if you were to look up Psalm 2, here's the thing you'll see that Psalm 2 is explicitly about God's anointed one and his kingship. It's the kingship of the Son. That's what that psalm is about. Verse 5b, the second part, I will be to him a father. Well, that one comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, and that too is a prophecy of God anointing an eternal king. The Son is the King. Verses 8 and 9 there, uh, 
Well, that's from Psalm 45. Uh, Psalm 45, also about God anointing his king. This time that's actually explicitly captured there. We can see it right there in the verses that, that the writer here has quoted. In that psalm, Psalm 45, a further detail is given that, that this king is both anointed by God and God. And that too is captured in the verses that are quoted there, isn't it? Your throne, O God, is forever. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. Verse 13, sit at my right hand. That's from Psalm 110, which is likewise about the kingship of the Lord, seated at the right hand of the Lord. Mystery and tension in these scriptures, no doubt. But in, in, in short, those scriptures behind those quotes, if you were to go and, and look them up, they're all about God's anointed king, who is also God. And so in the middle of that, when verse 6 there says, let all God's angels worship him, you won't be surprised to know that in the original scripture for that one, that's Deuteronomy 32, and it, and it comes up again in Psalm 97 in song form. It was actually about the worship of God, that psalm. So two verses 10 to 12 there. They're from Psalm 102. Psalm 102 calls for the praise of the salvation of God. We couldn't really miss that from the things that were said there in verses 10 to 12, that this was actually about God, could we? The difficult thing, now that they're laid out here in Hebrews, is that all, all, all those words now are being explained as having been written in the first place about Jesus. So Hebrews is taking these old scriptures and opening our eyes to understand these Old Testament scriptures that they were talking about Jesus. So chapter 1 sets out repeatedly, therefore, that Jesus is God's anointed king and that he is also God. Divine kingship is really the emphasis, the theme in the subcurrent running through Hebrews chapter 1. Of course Jesus will be king if he's both anointed by and, and yet equal to God. It's good to drop into the subtext there, get underneath what's going on here by thinking through where these scriptures come from. The king theme, even though it's again still in, in the subtext to those quotes, it's still running through chapter 2 under the surface as well. But, but there it picks up the other side, that Jesus became fully human, fully human in order to take up his kingship. Look at just the big quote there in, in verse 6 of chapter 2. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's from Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is about the kingly anointing of a man. 
But not just any man, as Hebrews clarifies for us here. I mean, we might have read Psalm 8 if we were just sitting at home. We might have read Psalm 8 thinking it was like, it was like about humanity in general. It's just it's our creation status as human beings being described here. But, but, but no, says Hebrews. It was more profoundly talking about Jesus. And therefore, that for a little while he was made lower than the angels. Though he is divine, chapter 1, he became man, chapter 2. And that was a crucial part of this process of his uh, anointing, his his kingship, as verse 9 explains. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Lowered not just in terms of becoming human, but but becoming human so as to be lowered into death. What an unthinkable thing for, for the divine, isn't it? But that's what the scriptures declare. And so verse 12 there in chapter 2, verse 12 is a quote from Psalm 22, a psalm about the man who suffered to bring people under the kingship of the Lord. So Hebrews 1 and 2 give us these basic truths about Jesus over and over. Once you do go away and read through the back scriptures, here's the sense of these two chapters, I guess, if we could kind of just capture it and condense it all down into one simple crystallised little formula. The divine became human to become king. The divine became human so as to become king. God, man, king. That's what Hebrews are setting out here at the start. A lot of people can't handle that formula, that process of God become man, becoming king. Especially the first part of the formula seems to be the big thing today that people can't really get their heads around, that Jesus was first and always divine. For example, the Jehovah's Witnesses are a group today that just plumb rejects that truth. Despite how relentlessly Hebrews 1 here has proclaimed it, they have instead decided that Jesus must be a created God of some kind. But Hebrews rules that out categorically. He he is no created God. He himself created creation, chapter 1 and verse 10. That same verse calls him Lord, and and quotes Psalm 102, Psalm 102 that clearly spoke those words to Yahweh, Jehovah. Hebrews calls Jesus God. There is just no getting around that. What the Jehovah's Witnesses propose instead is, is nothing new. It's actually an old heresy. This created God idea is an old heresy called Arianism after a heretical priest called Arius in the 4th century AD. He thought the same way then as the Jehovah Witnesses still do today. Hebrews 1 rejects Arianism. So too do many other scriptures, of course. So too, therefore, has the church rejected 
Arianism. If the Bible rejects it, then so too must we reject it. At other times, though, I've heard the Jehovah's Witnesses trying to get around this by claiming that Jesus is, is an angel. The Archangel Michael, for example, pops up in their arguments. But again, Hebrews rejects that too, doesn't it? I mean, the whole argument stretching across these first two chapters stresses the supremacy of Jesus far, far, far above the angels. The Jehovah's Witnesses just cannot see what these texts in black and white say. So do not listen to their teaching. And do not think that they somehow have anything to teach you. They come across as so knowledgeable of Scripture, but do not think that they have anything to teach you if they cannot even see what these two pages say. It's less common today, but other groups through history have really struggled with, I guess, the second part of this formula in Hebrews. They're okay with Jesus being divine, sure, but they, they can't then compute how he could possibly, therefore, become human. That's just unthinkable to their comprehension of God. And so there's a whole bunch of, of old heresies about that, too. Like Docetism. Docetism claimed that Jesus just seemed to be human. I guess today atheists sometimes talk and think a bit like that when they say things like, you know, the disciples just went through a mass delusion. They, they just imagined these things about Jesus. Even in New Testament times, though, such heresies and errors were, were already sprouting in the church so that in letters like 1 John, they were being refuted. Hebrews chapter 2 also refutes those ways of thinking. Jesus was fully man. Look at what it says. He partook in the same flesh and blood as us, verse 14 does so clearly say. And I guess finally some people reject the third part of the formula, that the divine became human so as to become king. Some people talk as if Jesus is done. They reject his kingship in their life and they reject his kingship in all kinds of ways, but maybe we could think about two broad kind of category mistakes people make about Jesus' kingship. People reject Jesus' kingship when they reject his word. Say, to take on instead the teaching and the wisdom of the world. And people reject Jesus' kingship when they reject his church. Just in broad swathe, you know, writing off the, the kingdom that Jesus is actively building in this world. Say, to pursue their own independence and autonomy from what Jesus is doing. We need to be very careful and lean in to see what the scriptures actually do say. Let's drop back into chapter 2 and verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I mean, there's that formula in, in one verse, if you think about it. He was higher than angels, but he was lowered to our frame so that by death he would be crowned with glory and honour. 
God, man, king. That's our Hebrews formula. And the reason given as to why he had to take up his kingship in, in, in this way was so that he might taste death for everyone. In other words, that by him tasting death on that cross, as he did, we can be spared the death that we deserve, by which I mean the second death, not the first death. We'll all die a first death, friends, unless Jesus does return first. But, but we won't then be sent to what the Bible calls the second death in scriptures like Revelation. Because when we face God's judgment after this life, we will not be then cast into hell if Jesus is our king. So in other words, the divine became human to take up his kingship for a very good reason. For this simple reason. It was for us. It was for us that he did it this way. See it again in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's the coronation process again that we're talking about. But why that way is the burning question in everyone's minds. Well, verse 11 then sets it out. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given to me. He did it for us. He saved us into a kingdom. Since, therefore, verse 14, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Friends, the devil held no power of death over the divine Son of God. He held it over us. That's why the divine became human, to become king. It's because we are human that he became human. He binds himself to us. He enters into death for us. So that the power of death that the devil holds over us would be defeated. Because this king loved us. For surely it's not angels that he helps. He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And there is the key to all of this that Hebrews has been saying. He had to be made like us because we have sin. 
That's the reason the devil has power over us all and why we're otherwise hopelessly facing death. Not just the first death, I mean, the second death. Our sin warrants God's righteous judgment, which should have us cast out of his presence, out of his throne room, and into the depths of hell. But for this, Jesus came and took on our form so that he could make propitiation for our sins. Let's think about that word, propitiation. Propitiation is a fancy way of saying that Jesus received the punishment that we deserve for our sin against God. Wow, we really don't like, though, to think of our own circumstances and weigh our own situation up in such dire terms, do we? But there it is in Scripture. We are not fit to be in the presence of God. We, in our sinfulness, are not fit to be in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God. And that needs to be reconciled somehow. God's righteous punishment of all sin must be carried out. Of that, have no doubt. But how then could we be his people? Enter God's propitiation for our sin. Propitiation is the whole point of what Jesus did on the cross and therefore why he came in our form. And it's as simple as this. He stepped in and received the righteous punishment of God against our sin. That's what propitiation is. He himself was without sin, of course, as chapter 4 is going to clarify us for us uh, soon enough. And, and so, so rather, uh, Jesus was punished on the cross for our sin. And that, therefore, satisfies God's right and good wrath against our sin. And, and so that sets us free from God's judgment. That's what propitiation means. Jesus died for our sins. That's what chapter 2 and verse 3 meant by the great salvation that God has held out to us. We can be spared what our sins deserve because of Jesus, our King. So too it was there back in chapter 1 and verse 3. He made purification for our sins. So there's another little sort of piece of the formula, I guess, just trying to force its way into that nice, tidy little uh, summary that I had. A fourth little bit squeezing into the middle. The divine became human to receive the judgment for our sin so as to become our eternal king. Because in propitiating our sin, Jesus has made it so that we can now be in the presence of God, and therefore in the presence of our King. So yes, we have to squeeze another word into that formula. God, man, propitiation, King. I think those who can't accept this formula, for whatever reason it is, whatever part of the formula that, that breaks down for them, I, I think they've all got one thing in common, no two things in common. 
They have not come to terms with God's love for us, to do this for us. And nor have they truly grasped then God's glory in doing this for us. For it was fitting, chapter 2 and verse 10, it was fitting that he should suffer for us. The Bible confounds us. It is so countercultural. It is so counterintuitive when it speaks of God and his ways. He is crowned with glory and honor now on account, account of his suffering and death because he did it for us. So what greater testimony could there be of the love that God has for us than what Jesus has done? And what, what greater glory could there be than that of a life-giving saviour that would be fitting for our king? Make no mistake on what the scriptures repeatedly do say. You and I have sin. That sin has incurred the wrath of God. But the Son of God took on our likeness to receive that wrath that we do deserve. And so if we receive what Jesus did, then, then the wrath of God no longer remains on us. Our sin is propitiated if Jesus be our King. So, is he your king, I guess, is kind of what bubbles out of all the, the subtext in these back quotes here. If you haven't yet responded to what Jesus has done, then do so today. This great salvation is for every sinner who will but repent and trust in this king. There's no strings attached, there's no asterisks, there's no gotchas or fine print or, or clever fiddling involved. All that is required is that we open our mouths and say, yes, please, and thank you, Lord. So receive it, receive it freely and receive it with joy and thanks in your heart, but don't ignore it. Don't disregard this wonderful thing that God has done because in no other way can your sin be resolved. Otherwise our king needn't have done this, need he? Therefore we must pay much closer attention, it says, to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In other words, we shall not escape if we neglect this. When you do then put your trust in him, and for those of us who already have come to that point some time ago of putting our trust in him, then, then think about the formula that's in the back scriptures here of what's being laid out in these chapters. 
And have no doubts on the great truths in this little formula. If the Son is divine, then the propitiation he made for you is perfect and complete. What greater substitute could be offered in your place? Who could possibly come and claim to you that you still need something more to have peace with your God? No. If you have repented and trusted in Jesus, then your sins have been dealt with by him. Full stop. But be on your guard, because people will knock on your door and try to sell you something more. Think on the second part of the formula too. If the Son became like us to do this for us, then, then he truly has made himself our brother. He didn't come here for angels, verse 16. He came here for sinful old you and I. And so if, if we've received what he has done for us, this, this propitiation here, then, then we're now even brought into his family, these scriptures do say. Brought into his family together. He is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters now, says verse 11. And yet do think too in terms of the last part of that formula. By the glory of this great salvation and the way that he's brought about this great salvation for us, he himself has sat back down at the right hand of God to have all things subjected under him. He will forever be your king. Your king. Even the angels of God will worship him. So you're in very good hands. And you're in very good company when you receive Jesus as your king. Learn then to sit under him now. Let him rule over your life and increasingly so in the congregation of the king. Hear again then what these two chapters say. God became man to propitiate your sin. And too easily as Christians we stop there. We stop there. We catch the great salvation in all this, but then we don't fall under Jesus as our king. But no, God became man to pay for your sin, to become forever your king. I mentioned that king was one of the three offices God anointed people for in Old Testament times and that to be anointed is literally what the, the word Christ or Messiah means. Our Christ is our king. The second office people were anointed for was the prophet and we thought about Jesus in, in his capacity in that regard last week. The third was the high priest and you might have noticed the high priest actually ties into that propitiation word that breaks its way into our formula at the end of our scriptures, verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus was anointed or Christ, or Messiah, for all three roles, our prophet, our priest, and our king. We thought about the first two uh, so far, but we'll come back and think about that third one later on in the letter. There's much more to unpack here about that.
For now, just see in passing there that he is merciful. He is faithful. Not just in terms of the propitiation he made for our sin, but so too to help us in our times of need. Plenty more to think about in terms of Jesus as our priest. For today, I think it's enough for us to to, to worship our king. So let me pray to that end. Heavenly Father, we always thank you for your word to us in Scripture and we thank you of what we read here. Thank you for the gift of your Son who condescended from your glory to take on our form and to die for our sin. Father, thank you for this propitiation word and that it means Jesus has received the punishment we do deserve. Thank you for your great salvation that comes through this, the salvation from our sin. Thank you that we can be clear on that as we open up your word. Now, Father, we know we can be with Jesus, our our holy and gracious and glorious King, forever, because he has done this for us. And so, Father, on the back of these scriptures, we pray that you would please bind these truths on our hearts and our minds forever. Protect us from those who do try to deny these truths. Strengthen us in these truths so that our lives would would continue to give Jesus honour and glory for what he has done to become our great King. And it's in his name that we petition you and thank you and praise you, world without end. Amen.